Good afternoon, evening, wherever, whenever we find you. Uh, thanks for tuning in to Doth Protest Too Much. We have River Devereaux on uh, the podcast this morning and Earth this morning. It's afternoon for me, but you may be listening to it this morning. And River is a preacher and young adults uh, pastor at Auckland Anglican Mission. Did I pronounce that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And it's part of the Church of Confessing Anglicans of a place in New Zealand. And I should have ran this by you before we recorded, but tell me. The, yeah, so uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand, but Aotearoa is the the sort of indigenous Māori um, name okay. for New Zealand. So um, these days we tend to use use both. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, thank you. Uh, I so the church of and it was the Church of Confessing Anglicans, which you are part of, was formed in 2019. What's some of the backstory behind that? Yeah, so um, we when we were formed, um, Archbishop Foley Beach of the ACNA, he led the consecration of our presiding bishop. Um, so we we're affiliated with GAFCON. Okay. Um, and yeah, we we formed. Um, over, I mean, the the mainstream Anglican Church of New Zealand had been moving in a progressive uh, direction for a long time. And then the sort of straw that broke the camel's back was when General Synod allowed for the blessing of same-sex unions and the ordination of uh, people who are openly in a same-sex relationship. Okay. So um, they tried to, they, they thought that that would be a good sort of compromise um, between the conservatives and the liberals. You know, they're saying, oh, well, we don't, we don't have same-sex marriage, but that's essentially what they're sort of doing through this whole blessing thing. So, uh, yeah, quite a few uh, more conservative gospel-centered churches uh, decided that we could no longer stand with the mainstream church. And so uh, GAFCON really helped out and helped us set up this new uh, diocese. It's called an extra provincial diocese. So, yeah. And uh, you are currently finishing a theology degree at Laidlaw College. Did I pronounce that right? Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, and you can tell I did. I took this off of your bio from uh, where I saw you. North American Anglican. Which I'll get into in a moment with North American Anglican. Uh, but your wife, Georgia and son, son, uh, Basil, Basil, Basil. Okay. Uh, well, I mean, I think he's named after, um, St. Basil, the great, who I, I believe is probably more pronounced Basil, but right. we call him Basil. I've had, so. I've actually had two students over the years. Uh, one went by Basil, one went by Basil. So yeah, in the United States. So, um, yeah. And when they, when Georgia, and Basil aren't keeping River too busy. He also talks about Anglicanism on his YouTube channel, New Kingdom Media. So check that out. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So uh, River, I first saw your work on the North, Amer- North American Anglican, uh, which is a website that publishes articles from various contributors across Anglicanism from around the globe. So it is also affiliated for our listeners with podcast, the podcast Miserable Offenders, which may sound familiar. Uh, we have had Isaac Rayberg, Father Isaac, on this con- podcast a couple of times. Excuse me. And, and uh, North American Anglican, from what I understand, you could correct me, but it can be described not necessarily as like 
explicitly reformed or evangelical like the Protestant side of Anglicanism, but it seems to be that implicitly. What do you say to that? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I know some of the the, the chief uh, editors of North American Anglican, and they do they do lean in a more reformed Protestant direction, but they do certainly also publish um, articles written by Anglo-Catholics. Mm-hmm. And there are Anglo-Catholics who are sort of involved in the website on a sort of administrative level, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it, it's trying to, it is trying to represent the sort of wide breadth of, of Orthodox Anglicanism in, in North America in particular, but yeah. Well, I, I noticed that it it, uh, it expresses a commitment to the formularies um, mm-hmm. and to for our listeners, you know, to Anglicanism as established um, is and so many of the contributors uh, seem of that mind to me from the little from what I've read. Um, yeah, and I really should take more time to read it. I, of course, me being Episcopalian, uh, Episcopal Church, of the United States. Uh, you know, I'd have, you know, of course, some colleagues that would wonder why I would read such a thing that is affiliated with ACNA and GAFCON and the likes. But nevertheless, I think there are a lot of thoughtful engagement with Anglicanism and the tradition of Anglicanism um, in on North American Anglican, which I think any Anglican, whether they be, you know, in this continent, be Episcopalian, ACNA or something else. Who is a curious? Who is curious about their own Anglican tradition can benefit to check check this check them out. So yeah, for sure. But you wrote a recent piece called "To Follow One's Conscience: A True Defense of Protestantism," which I I think can be read and appreciated all in its own. But to understand the full context of of what you wrote there, we should direct our readers to two other articles that you wrote prior to that one, which which that one is connected to. Um, one was called Reformation Anglicanism in Nicaea II, an article you wrote in May, and uh, to reject a council, an essay on scripture, the church, and the believer that you wrote in August. You seem to have some critics of your work, people who uh, disagreed with you in the, the for those first two articles, and your, your latest is in many ways a rebuttal um, of them, but also a farther argument um, from you. Now, before we get into your argument, let's define some terms. We have not really done an episode here on Doth Protest. That was, um, so I'm, I'm glad we're doing it now. We never really did an episode that was entirely devoted to or really brought up what an ecumenical council is. Um, mm-hmm. Now, some would laugh at, at us and say, maybe some first-time listeners who don't know us very well yet. A typical Protestant show doesn't talk about ecumenical councils, you know, because (laughs) Protestants just believe the Bible and that, you know, that's it. Nothing happened after the Bible. The church emerged in a vacuum, you know. But of course, you know, that's fair to say of some Protestants. They are allergic to, you know, tradition or church history. But, you know, we're a historical theology podcast, so I would hope no one gets that impression of us here. (laughs) <laughs> but no, we, we uh, you know, just the topic of ecumenical councils has not uh, yet really had some substantial focus for any reason on the podcast. So this would be a good opportunity. Uh, River, if you can explain what these councils were or are and why are they, why are they called ecumenical? Give us some, give us a break. Yeah. Yeah. So in the, in the early church, uh, there were, there were, 
church councils or synods uh, like there are today. And the like historians looking back, but also at the church at the time made a distinction between what we would call a local council and what we'd call an ecumenical council. So a local council would be held in a particular province or diocese, and it would make pronouncements that would be for that province. And then this is how we have it in the Anglican church today anyway, um, of course. So in the Anglican communion, different provinces have different things that they allow for. Um, but then an ecumenical council were councils that were considered to represent the whole church and were therefore binding upon the whole church. So the most famous ecumenical council would be what we would call the first council of Nicaea. This is where we have the Nicene Creed. Um, that's that the council is sort of trying to combat Arianism. It's trying to defend the, the full divinity of Jesus Christ. We've got other councils like the Council of Chalcedon, where they are combating Nestorianism and trying to explain that Jesus is, while he is fully God, he's also fully human. So um, these councils in particular would be considered by most Christians today to, to essentially represent or to be the standard of what we would consider orthodox Christian belief. Mm-hmm. So, um, for instance, a Jehovah's Witness believes in the Bible like, like, well, they, that's what they claim. But why we would, why we'd want to say that they're not Christian or not Orthodox is because they don't assent to the the doctrinal pronouncements of these councils. Mm-hmm. Now, there's it's actually a matter of debate over what makes a council ecumenical. Um, one one theory would be a council is ecumenical if, in the future, after it's been held it has been unanimously accepted by the church. But that's a that's actually a problematic definition because it's very circular uh, because you're, you end up just going to be saying, well, who is the church? And eventually the church is going to be the people who agree with it. So yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't really actually work. Um, if you read the ecumenical councils themselves, they claim to be ecumenical in and of themselves, they're not they're not sort of um, dependent on later acceptance, and and the criteria for what would make them ecumenical. There's a few things. One of them would be that they needed to be um, presided over. Presided might not be quite the right word, but but sort of overseen by the Roman emperor. Mm-hmm. So famously, um, Constantine, the emperor, uh, oversaw the First Council of Nicaea. So that so it has this sort of um, imperial, um, yeah, it, it has imperial authority to it, and then there might be some other criteria about um, the the key patriarchs of the church need to be represented and and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's that's all well and that's all well and good. Of course, things are very different now because uh, this was all before the Great Schism, and so. There might be different theories about if there can even be an ecumenical council anymore. So the the Eastern Orthodox Church would probably consider that there there hasn't been an ecumenical council and in around about a thousand years, and there and there can't be because the patriarch of the West, the you know the the Pope, is not in communion with them. In the Roman Catholic Church, they would say that they can still have ecumenical councils because the Roman Catholic Church is the one holy Catholic Apostolic Church. So they would say that Trent, a, a council that was held um, to counter the Reformation, was an ecumenical council. 
I think as Protestants, we would tend to just say that um, we don't really recognize this this sort of idea that there's this this thing called an ecumenical council in the first place. There's various councils, and we acknowledge the authority of some of them. We agree with some of them. We don't agree with others. Um, because because Protestants don't ha- well, they, we don't tend to have a structural or institutional view of the church, where a council represents the church only if these archbishops are sort of represented, and and we don't we don't tend to see it that way. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think it's a it, from a Protestant perspective, ecumenic the whole idea of an ecumenical council isn't so much a big deal for us. However, in the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, they are a big deal, and they believe that ecumenical councils are what they would call infallible. Mm-hmm. Now, that word is going to come up, I imagine, quite a few times in this podcast. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, if something's infallible, it means that it has a particular quality to it, a divine quality that ensures that everything it says will be true mm-hmm. okay so that's that's different to saying it just so happens to be true like i could say uh the the earth revolves around the sun one plus one equals two and i could write a whole book of nothing but statements that we all acknowledge to be true that doesn't make my book infallible something's infallible if god the god of truth the spirit of truth is the author behind it and so we know that whatever it says is automatically true. Mm-hmm. Now, in Protestantism, we say that only Scripture has this quality. Only Scripture is infallible. That's not the position of the Orthodox Church or the Roman Catholic Church, where they would say ecumenical councils are also infallible. Mm-hmm. That's going to lead to massive implications for almost every aspect of Christian life, really. Um, and so I, I think, yeah, is there anything maybe you'd want me to add or? Well, I, I, I was going to add to that. Um, I, I, I'm literally Googling right now. How many councils? Okay. So according to the Catholic Church, um, according to the Roman Catholic Church, there have been 21 church councils. And by their view of those councils, those are ecumenical councils. Um, according to, I guess, Protestantism broadly is hard to nail down, but in the Episcopal Church, there's a running joke of like, okay, are you with the first four councils? Are you with the first seven councils? Um, Those who would, I guess, lean Protestant, quote unquote, would be for the first four. Those would be, you know, more Anglo-Catholic would be the first seven. Um, And so it's like, you know, you know, you explain and spelled out like what these councils were for, they were for, um, you know, they, they held a certain authority to them. They were, they were, you know, originally there to, uh, you know, spell out, you know, um, what, 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 what was kind of, you know, within bounds and, uh, outside of bounds, so to speak. Yeah. Um, they were there to, uh, basically, uh, determine the mission, the course of action the church should take. Um, you know, they were there because it's like, you know, like many things like Paul's letters, right. Their responses to 
differences of understanding that people within the body of Christ had. And so they're coming to go, okay, let's hash this out. They're coming together. They're, we're going to work this out, right? And those are the efforts of the council. They're responding to their different historical circumstances. And, um, you know, uh, but on that same token, uh, you, you know, uh, you mentioned like, I like how you said with the councils, people, there's almost like a retroactive thing where like people like what well, you will look back at the councils and determine if they were valid councils of the whole church or if these councils were not representative of the whole church, right? Because you got the Catholic church with their 21 councils. You know, which the last one was Vatican II, which I mean, I would think of any of them, you know, they brought in some, you know, theologians and thinkers of the of the non-Roman Catholic tradition. So that to be fair to the Roman Catholic Church, they brought in some people. But but yeah, like you mentioned, the Council of Trent, which was which can, I think, fairly in many ways be seen as a just a reactionary council to what went on during the Reformation. And so um you know, you got this whole idea of like, you know, me personally, I'm kind of a first four type of person. Um, but I know other Anglicans who are like, oh, the first seven can be countered as like, you know, valid. Um, yeah. Things put forth by the church. But you mentioned this interesting distinction between, or I know in your work you did, I'm getting ahead of myself because when you said like, uh, that whoever decides if that council is valid, it's kind of subjective, right? Because it's like, you know, you're not, what did you say? It's like, you're not going to get the whole church. To- yeah. So, yeah. So just to give an example, the Roman Catholic church says the council of Trent is mm-hmm. ecumenical and represents the church. And so we mm-hmm. say, no, it doesn't because it doesn't represent Protestantism. We mm-hmm. reject that council. Um, yeah. But then you mm-hmm. could use let, let me just say really clearly, emphatically, before I say what I'm about to say, I accept the Council of Chalcedon. I believe in the Chalcedonian definition. I don't reject that council at all. But you could you could say, well, why is the Council of Chalcedon considered ecumenical when the Oriental Orthodox Church sure. rejected it? Mm-hmm. Uh, so who's to say that they don't represent the church? So it actually becomes a sort of question-begging and circular uh, logic about who the church even is. And eventually you're just going to say the church is whoever the church says the church is, which isn't a workable definition. Um, So this, I think this idea that, yeah, a council is ecumenical if it's represented by the church just simply can't work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's why when you, when you actually look at the seven, yeah, I I didn't sort of go through the numbers Uh, before the schism, when the church split in, um, in AD uh, 1054, there were seven ecumenical councils that were held. So the Orthodox church would say that those are the seven ecumenical councils. And then um, most Anglo-Catholics will say that those are the seven as well. I don't know any Anglo-Catholics who would say that Trent was an ecumenical council. Um, when you look at those councils, oh, you they, don't know any saying, Anglo-Catholics who would say Trent was an ecumenical council. No, because I, I think <laughs> oh, wow, that's very interesting. <laughs> Well, yeah. I yeah, I call them. They're yeah. more like Anglo papalists, but yes, <laughs> yes, yes, for sure. Um, these councils didn't say, "Oh, you know, we're just a council, and if this gets accepted later, then we're ecumenical." They did 
So like, for instance, we'll get to this later, of course, but the second council of Nicaea, this is the seventh council, says it's ecumenical uh, in itself. So um, they did, they did, they did identify themselves as being ecumenical from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, as Protestants, we we just we tend to not really recognize this idea to begin with, mm-hmm. um, because we don't have that structural ecclesiology. Well, and we when we get, I'm I'm glad you said that because when we get into the ecclesiology and how Protestants don't, they're not concerned from if I'm hearing you out right, they're not concerned with who is saying that is an ecumenical versus who is not. It's when you get into the distinction between a visible and an invisible church. Mm-hmm. And can you kind of explain that a little bit? What that what the distinction is? Yeah. Yeah. So this is not uniquely like reformers onward. Augustine yeah. kind of plants the seeds for this from my yeah. understanding. Yeah. Yeah. So just to start with scripture. So Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, there's uh there's weeds or tears planted, and there's also there's also wheat. Um, and they're, they're growing up together. We know that in the church, there are people who are visibly in the church who are what we would consider to be heretics or not real Christians. Um, there's, there's bishops even who clearly are not, don't have a living faith, clearly aren't regenerated, clearly uh, don't have a living faith in Jesus Christ. So we, we make this distinction that is the visible church. So people who are sort of, they turn up to church on Sunday, they're taking the sacraments, they may be ordained to positions of authority, but then there's also an invisible church of the people who are actually mystically united to Christ. Mm-hmm. The people who have actually been regenerated are actually one spirit of the Lord um, are actually, you know, actually participating in his body and blood, that sort of thing. So there's this distinction there. I think everyone, everyone would recognize that, that, mm-hmm. There are people who are visibly in the church who aren't actually really in the body of Christ. So uh, the, the question is, like, how how the, how how strongly are you going to make the distinction? So in in Protestantism, we would say that the true church is the invisible church, and the visible church is simply what happens when the invisible church gathers around word and sacrament? So the, 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 the definition of the church that Luther, Calvin, and the 39 articles give of the visible church is in the 39, in the 39 articles, it says it's a congregation of Christian men who are gathered around the, the proper administration of the sacraments and the true preaching of the word. When that happens, this means the invisible body of Christ has been gathered around these visible signs of word and sacrament. And there you go, you've got a visible church right there. And uh, there can be, there's many visible churches. So so I, we're, we're Anglicans, but we'd be, oh, at least, I mean, I'm sure I'd be happy to say that the, the Presbyterians are, are a church, a true church, part of the church. I'd say the same for Lutherans. Um, you know, it could go on and on. But of course, we're not, we're not actually structurally united with them. Uh, we might not even be in table fellowship with some of them, but, but we're affirming, you know, not your visible church because you have invisible people, uh, sorry, people part of the invisible church gather around word and sacrament. And, and that's kind of what the church is, the visible church is. 
Now, the visible church can have councils and, and all that sort of thing, and, and those have authority, but for, for each group. So, for instance, as Anglicans, our visible church has um, the formularies, the Third Articles, the Book of Common Prayer, the homilies. Uh, we are not going to expect a Presbyterian to have to obey or adhere to our formularies. They have their own formularies. They have the Westminster Confession of Faith, and they can't expect us to adhere to those either. So churches have their own, have the freedom to make their own rules, to have their own confessions of faith. They have the freedom and authority to expect their um, their clergy to assent to those formularies. Um, so that that's a very, that's a radically different idea of the visible church to say a Roman Catholic. You know, say, no, no, the, there's one visible church. That's the Roman Catholic church. And that church has to be structurally united. You've got the Bishop of Rome, you have the Cardinals, you have the bishops who are all in communion with Rome. If a bishop is excommunicated by the Pope, that means that um, him and his flock are no longer part of the church. They, they're outside of it. Uh, as, as Protestants, we just don't have that kind of view at all. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like how you brought up the different uh from our anglican perspective um the different uh i guess parameter definitional parameters of what anglicans believe you know and this is maybe for a lot of our listeners who may be you know episcopalian you know parishioners i have uh, where i serve you know they they may know the 39 articles because that's in the back of the it's 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 uh has a section in our book of common prayer, but can you tell us what, what were the 39 articles? What were they for? Yeah. So the 39 articles were uh, written during the, the English reformation. Uh, originally Thomas Cranmer, who was the archbishop of Canterbury, who brought in the, the um, Protestant ideas to the church of England. He wrote 42 articles. This was, this was going to be the, the, the confession of faith for the, Church of England, sort of matching the Augsburg Confession or the Belgic Confession of the Continental Protestants. Uh, of course, he was burnt at the stake and um, Queen Mary came in and, and restored England to Roman Catholicism. When she died, uh, Henry VIII's daughter, Queen Elizabeth I, took power and she restored England to Protestantism. Uh, the, the church uh, edited Thomas Cremner's 42 articles to make it 39. And, and basically, it's just a succinct summary of what the Protestant Church of England believe about the Christian faith. So the first article is about God, and we're going to go all the way through the sacraments, justification by faith, um, images, what the church is, uh, e- even to things like um, can Christians serve in the military, can there be the death penalty? Uh, so it, it's quite sweeping. It's, it's quite succinct, um, which has created some issues for Anglicans because it, it doesn't, some of it's pretty, uh, pretty quick. It's not, it's not like the Westminster Confession that goes into rigorous detail. So there's sort of no doubt about what it's saying. Some of the articles, it's sort of hard to tell exactly what they're talking about because it's quite a brief thing. You could easily read it in one sitting. Um, yeah, so that, that's that's what that is, and different Anglican provinces will will hold you to a higher standard of how much you need to assent to that. 
Sure. Uh, I think in my church, the Church of Confessing Anglicans, uh, our bishop would probably expect clergy to um, to read it, to to by and large agree with it at the very least. Yeah, um, yeah but other provinces might not um, care about that sort of thing. Right. Um, so, and I'm so sorry to kind of say in the preliminaries, but I, I really like the way you um, presented for us both ecumenical councils, 39 articles, because um, I know this shows up a lot in your work and so uh, that we'll be getting into. And so I know um, to, to give the helpful background and context uh, matters a lot here. Um, so thank you. Um, That's right. And on that note, one more thing, the term sola scriptura, which is a, you know, very much central principle of the Reformation. And in that sense, a central principle of Protestantism, um, you know, I guess an, an accrued, a crude definition of sola scriptura would be, would be Bible alone. Um, but explain what this is for us, because um, I think you know, this principle of the Reformation, which I believe in the, on the English side, the Anglican side of the Reformation with which the Episcopalians, Anglicans are descended of, um, held, held to that principle of Sola Scriptura. Sola Scriptura, I think, is often misunderstood. I, I often mm-hmm. see kind of the, the Reformational view of Sola Scriptura. Uh, misrepresented by both critics and proponents alike. Um, maybe starting with the proponents, I think a lot of them would say, if it's not in the Bible, I don't care, which is not what Sola Scriptura is. Um, and it's also misrepresented by the critics of Sola Scriptura, which you will get from certain Roman Catholic apologists and certain within the Anglicanism, the certain Anglo-Catholic apologists who say, you know, that the, you know, English Reformation maybe went too far in certain regards and, or that they would just say that, you know, the English Reformation is not the same thing in their revisionistic kind of understanding than the continental, you know, Luther and Calvin, you know, they, Luther and Calvin were, you know, they went too far. They would say they would say they, you know, with their view of Sola Scriptura, um, they totally threw out, you know, um, the baby with the bathwater as far as like, you know, an understanding of how church tradition works within this. And so kind of tell us what is, you know, from a proper reformational understanding of what Sola Scriptura is. Tell us what that is. Sure. And I'll just say Sola Scriptura is the, the, it's the hinge of the Reformation. You can't be a Protestant and not believe in Sola Scriptura and the Reformation can't, um, can't make sense and can't even be justified without Sola Scriptura. It's people call it the formal principle of the Reformation. It's sort of what's governing. It's sort of behind the scenes of everything. Sola Scriptura means, yeah, Bible alone. Essentially what this means is uh, everything that's necessary for salvation has to be contained in Scripture. So, for instance, in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, you it, it's, a, it's a dogma that you have to believe 
in the Immaculate Conception of Mary, so that Mary was sinless, or um, the well, various other doctrines, right? Uh, and and that it's simply just not in Scripture. So we're going to say, no, no, you, you you only have to believe what's in the Bible. Also, it means that only Scripture is infallible. And this is the big key issue of my articles. So it's saying even an ecumenical council could have made a mistake, could could err, could could have failed on some points. Only the Bible can be trusted to be automatically 100% true in and of itself. Um, and, I mean, those are the two main real principles of it, but there's this that actually leads to some other things in solar scripture. So we, we ascribe certain attributes to scripture. We say scripture is authoritative. Everyone already agrees with that anyway, but you know that if the Bible says that you have to believe it, we believe, uh, however, that it's sufficient. So scripture contains the sufficient teaching or information for everything of importance. You, we don't have to rely on outside sources to give us crucial information about God's will. Every, like it's sufficient for you to know how to live a life pleasing to God and how to save your soul. And then as part of sufficiency, we also say it's perspicuous. This is a key word uh, that's very important for the articles I wrote. Perspicuous means clear. So you read it and it's sort of just clear what it's saying. Um, what this means is that you don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to be a Hebrew and Greek scholar to understand what the heck the Bible's saying. You can, you can be a layman. You can be, uh, just, you know, a simple manual laborer and you can open up the Bible and you, and you can know what it's saying. Uh, and this means that we read scripture on a plain sense reading. So this is a sort of hermeneutic of Protestantism. Uh, we don't, if scripture seems to be plainly saying something, we're just going to go with the plain sense. This is different to say in the Roman Catholic church or the Eastern Orthodox church who deny scripture's perspicuity. They say scripture is actually quite mysterious and vague in some places and that's, they don't say that's sort of like a like a failing of scripture. They say it's sort of almost intended that way. And only the church can interpret it. Uh, without the church being there to interpret it, you, you actually really can't know what it's saying. And that means that the church's interpretation is infallible. So if the church says the Bible is saying X, that means that is absolutely what it's saying. Now, in Sola Scriptura, we're going to say no. We don't require the church to interpret it in an infallible sense. And what that means is I as an individual or Luther as an individual, let's stick with Luther, actually. Um, Luther can pick up his Bible and he can read it and he can say, you know what? Uh, you've made a mistake. Uh, what the church has been teaching for hundreds of years is not correct. This is, that's not what scripture is saying. He has the freedom to do that. Um, if you read about the life of Luther, you know, the way that the cardinals of the Roman Catholic church responded to Luther, they essentially said, no, you don't, you don't have the right to say we're wrong because we are infallible. You, you literally cannot do that. You just cannot question what the church has said. So, um, 
as, as Protestants, we take this and we, and we, so we say that a, an individual can question other teachings of scripture. Now, there is a misunderstanding. Sola Scripture doesn't mean that we therefore don't believe in creeds and confessions. Of course, we don't think that because Luther and Calvin and Cranmer, the big proponents of Sola Scriptura, wrote confessions of faith. You know, so Cranmer thoroughly believed in Sola Scriptura, but he wrote the 42 articles and he expected all clergymen of the Church of England to fully assent to those articles. Um, but what we're saying is that the church has a ministerial rather than a magisterial role. So the church exists to serve you by guiding you through scripture rather than standing over scripture and imposing an interpretation on it. So the 39 articles aren't saying this is what scripture says because we say so. And, and you can't question that. It's saying, this is what we believe scripture is saying. Uh, if you read these articles we've written for you, we believe this will give you a good understanding of what the Bible is saying. And we can expect clergy to assent to those. But what I would say is a, an individual Christian is also free to, to not believe them. Uh, I, I, could, I could read my Bible and say, you know what? I think these, some of these articles are actually not true. And if my, if my church says, actually, you, you can't um, come to church on Sunday unless you agree with all of them, not that any Anglican church pretty much would, would say that, um, then I would, then, you know, I'd have to just pack up my bags and, and go to another church, I suppose. And I'm free to do that. Yeah. So there's, there's an aspect there. This is, um, it's, it's, you actually had a, a guest not too long ago on your podcast talking about this. I think it was Dr. Brad Littlejohn talking about yeah. um, the two kingdoms theory. So this actually is all tied into it. So there's, there's, there's the visible, the visible realm and there's the invisible realm and in the, in the invisible realm, my master is Jesus alone mm -hmm. and I'm under the authority of scripture alone. So like Martin Luther said in freedom of a Christian, he said, a Christian man is the most free Lord of all and subject to none. Um, and the idea there is I can follow my conscience. I can follow what's, what scripture is saying. By the way, when I say follow my conscience, I mean conscience as sort of tethered to the, to, to the Bible. I can't do whatever I want. I have to do what I believe God wants. But also in the visible sense, if I'm going to be in the Anglican church, if, if I'm going to be a clergyman, say, then, yeah, I do need to submit to what the church has laid out. Uh, but I could also uh, leave. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and uh, on that same note, I will quote, I, I just looked it up. I, I uh, Jack Kilcrease, who's also been on this podcast on uh, a couple episodes, Lutheran scholar, uh, in an article he wrote for, uh, for LutheranReformation.org, he said, because um, Luther is kind of the originator of this idea of, you know, creeds and, well, He's not the originator of it, but he's the reminder for many Christians in his day what the proper place of authority that creeds and confessions have. Um, Kilkery says the Lutheran Church, therefore, does not view its creeds and confessions to be an authority standing alongside the Bible, like the Book of Mormon and the Church of Latter-day Saints, but rather standing under the authority of the Bible. If any of these secondary, secondary authorities teaches something not found in scripture, then 
ordinary believers have the right to hold them accountable before the bar of the supreme authority of the Bible. It is the responsibility of Christians in each generation to test the official teachings of the visible church against what they find in scriptures. And I, I thought, well, that's kind of well put. And that kind of rounds off our, our in, in a way, our discussion on, um, you know, because it's like, you know, we've been talking about how does soul scripture operate? How does it operate as an authoritative norm in relation to councils? And I think you spoke a little bit on it. Councils are important. Councils aren't something to disregard as far as um, councils agree with scripture. And if, if a council wholly agrees with scripture, then there's no valid reason that there should be dissent against it. Um, you know, but, um, and well, I had another question, but maybe we'll get into it later. But I want you to get into, because the start of our kind of, um, kind of the, your initial article, which, you know, got some criticisms from some people was about the Council of Nicaea II, which is not the first Council of Nicaea from which we get the Nicaea mm -hmm. Um, Was it number seven? Yes, that's uh, the seventh council, the seventh and last of the, be, the great seven. The great seven. Would that be like eighth, though, right? If we count, counted the Jerusalem council. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Right. People want to have that seven. So that's that nice, uh, that nice biblical number. But yeah, nice biblical Jerusalem. Number. It's so interesting how that Jerusalem council gets neglected as far as, you know, but I get it. You know, yeah. people are mm -hmm. looking at a in a historical lens, which means after the Bible, whatever, but nice. The second council of Nicaea, um, you wrote initially an article about this before, you know, which set off the waves that we'll later get into, but, but, uh, tell us about this and tell us about it. And what did you conclude about the second council of Nicaea? Yeah. Okay. So the, the seventh council of Nicaea was about the veneration of images um, or the worship of images. So uh, essentially, can we paint pictures or make statues even, but, but let's just stick with painting pictures of Jesus? Can we paint pictures of the saints? Can we paint pictures of angels? That's one. Two, if we can, can we show veneration to them? So can we kiss them? Can we bow before them? Can we light incense to them um, or in front of them? Can we pray in front of them? And the council said yes to both of those things. This was a very controversial point at the time. And there, had, there was absolutely no consensus about that issue uh, at the time. And the, the council was actually rejected by the West initially. Um, so I, I would say it actually fails to sort of meet the criteria of an ecumenical council. Not that I, you know, like I said, not that I particularly care about that distinction anyway. Um, however, the West eventually did come to accept it. And, and by the time of the Reformation, the, the whole Roman Catholic Church and the whole Eastern Orthodox Church uh, believed that you can make images and you can venerate them. So at Luther's, Luther's time, 
Um, well, Luther actually agreed to Nicaea too, but at, in John Calvin's time, for instance, you know, you go to church and you'll find people kissing images, bowing for images, uh, that sort of thing. Now, the Anglican formularies uh, in the 39 articles say that you cannot venerate images. It also says you cannot pray to saints or ask saints to pray for you. This was another thing that Nicaea too said you can do. And then in the book of homilies, which uh, sometimes people say they are a formally, sometimes they're not, but the 39 articles themselves say that the homilies should be read and that they contain, you know, godly wisdom. The, in the homilies, there is a homily called On the Peril of Idolatry. And this homily in very explicit terms rejects Nicaea 2, um, says it has no authority for us today and that Nicaea 2 was wrong. Uh, that scripture completely forbids the the veneration of images. In fact, the distinction between veneration and worship doesn't exist. So people might say, oh, we're only venerating an image by kissing it. And the homily says, no, you're actually worshiping it. And that's idolatry. So that's a big move because that's rejecting a council that for the Roman Catholics and for the Eastern Orthodox is infallible. Um, and so they're going to say you actually don't have the right or the authority to to do that. Um, that if the church has infallibly said something, that means that it is infallibly true. And if you if you go against it, you've actually gone against God, because the reason those councils are infallible is because God's Holy Spirit guided them to be utterly true. So I wrote an article about uh, why. We know, we know that the Anglican formally reject Nicaea too, but why did they? So we went, I went through Sola Scriptura. I went through the arguments we find in the homily about how the early church fathers themselves forbade the veneration of images. And then I also talked about um, royal supremacy, which <laughs> no, one, no one debated me on, which is interesting because it's, it's kind of an odd subject, but uh, the belief in royal supremacy actually... Uh, was actually part of why the English church uh, rejected Nicaea too. Um, now, um, some writers on North American Anglican uh, uh, praised the article, but then there was also a detractor who uh, said um, in, a, in a sort of rebuttal um, article he wrote, he said, um, he sort of implied, I guess, that for me to read the Bible or for the English reformers to read the Bible, and say Nicaea 2 is wrong, they've made themselves a sort of authoritative interpreter of scripture and saying that they can reject what the church has sort of ecumenically said, and that that's a big problem. Um, and that leads to individualism, essentially. That I, I, as an individual, can read this thing and say, no, no, church has been wrong for hundreds of years. And, and so that he, he, levied, he levied that as a criticism against me um, he's an Anglo-Catholic. And uh, so, yeah, then I wrote a follow-up article. But I think if it, before we get to there, is there anything else you want to... No, 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 thanks for... Issue? Thanks for, you know, um, I might stick with a little bit of the um, veneration of worship distinction, if you don't mind. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, kind of speaking from my background, you know, I and our listeners know this because I talk about it all the time. But, you know, first part of my life, Lutheran, second part of my life, um, 
Episcopal in a, in a very North American context, which most Episcopal churches have lots of imagery and stuff in the churches. But, uh, you know, the, the Lutheran side of the Reformation, as opposed to the Reformed, which did have a later influence uh, or did have an influence ultimately on Anglicanism over the Lutheran side. Um, you know, there was the concern of really just whitewashing images and stuff from the churches um, uh, out of fear of idolatry. Um, but that is not, from what I read, that's not your position, right? You're, you're, you don't have an issue. Like, for instance, images for, you know, we can get in a minute into the what's the difference between venerating, worshiping, or if there is one or whatever. But for me, like Luther said something along the lines of, you know, we don't need to smash all these statues and scratch all these images because they can, um, in the when used properly, they can help us center our hearts and minds toward what they need to be centered upon, which mm -hmm. is the God yeah. transcendent beyond, you know, something I can try to, you know, locate in an image, you know? So, yeah. um, I mean, I guess what, what's your, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I'm okay with images in and of themselves and actually so is the homily. The homily does advocate for images to be removed from churches, but only because the writer of the homily, um, you could say pessimistically, thinks that if you've got an image in church, there is simply no way to avoid some common people being idolatrous about that. And maybe in the context of the Reformation, where they've just come out of Roman Catholicism, that may well be the case. Um, but very quickly, the Anglican church came to believe the images are fine. That's why if you go on holiday to England, uh, go to any cathedral and you'll find statues of saints, you'll find images going right back to the Middle Ages that they didn't get rid of. Of course, there are churches where they whitewashed images, they painted over them in white, but um, there's also churches where that's not the case. Uh, so I'm okay with images in and of themselves. That's fine. Just last night, I read the Jesus Storybook Bible to my to my son. And that's got little pictures of Jesus and stuff. That's all cool. Uh, the issue is simply the veneration of them. So can you have a painting of Jesus in your house? Sure. You know, so long as you understand that that image isn't, of course, accurate depiction of what our Lord actually looked like. We have no idea what he looked like. And he was a Jew and he didn't have blonde hair and blue eyes. Um, like in some depictions. As the liberals will always remind us of, yes. So. Yes. Um, and by the way, I'm not going to like to to sort of attack the liberals for a moment. I also do not believe you can depict Jesus as like, I don't know, a black woman or something. Um, he, he needs to be, he needs to be accurate. But what I wouldn't want to do is I wouldn't want to kiss a painting of Jesus. I wouldn't want to bow before it. I wouldn't want to, I mean, you can pray and look at it, I suppose, but you can't really be praying to it. Um, yeah, that that's the that would be the issue that you can't do that. And and by the way, that's that's one thing to be doing this with Jesus, who's God. But Nicaea too also says you can do this to not just paintings of Jesus, but also paintings of saints and angels. So you can kiss a painting of Saint Peter. You can bow before it, all that sort of thing. You can light a candle before it. And, and so I'm going to say with the Anglican formularies that that is um, not acceptable um, under scripture, that the, the Bible forbids that sort of behavior. And, and 
I'm looking at the time and I want to respect your time. How much longer do you want to hang out? Oh no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm cool. I've, I can go on forever. So there sorry. were, you got into some Greek exegesis in, in mm-hmm. the one article. Could tell us about that. If yeah. So in the new Testament, uh, there's, there's two words. There's a word called proskuneo and there's a word called latruo. And, uh, my position, and this is, you know, I, I do have to say that from a biblical scholarship perspective, this is sort of irrefutable. Okay. Those words are used interchangeably. Uh, they both basically just mean worship. And the, the second council of Nicaea says, no, proskuneo means venerate. This means to sort of revere, show respect to, show affection towards. That's not worship. And then letruo means worship that's reserved only for God. Um, And so uh, they say that you can show veneration or proskuneo to something and not be showing letruo or worship. And they say that that distinction is in scripture. Um, I, in my article, talked about how that distinction is not in scripture. Just the other day, I did a three hour video on another YouTuber's channel um, going even deeper into that. It's simply not there. Um, in fact, the primary word scripture uses for worship is proskuneo. So, you know, in, in like John 4, when Jesus says true worshipers must worship the Father and Spirit and truth, he uses the word proskuneo. Um, but then there are occasions where in scripture, someone tries to show veneration to someone who's not God and they're, for, they're forbidden from doing that. So in Acts 10, Cornelius tries to bow before Peter. And what's interesting is in, in Greek, when it, it doesn't say bow before, it actually just says proskuneo because that can mean bow before. And then Peter says, do not do that. I'm just a man. And then in Revelation 19, uh, John tries to bow before an angel, and again, the word is proskuneo, and the angel forbids him, says, get up, you must not do that. I too am a creature and servant of the Lord. And what's so interesting, what's so sort of funny about that is that Nicaea too said the word proskuneo in scripture only means venerate and not worship. So, uh, but what we have here is we've got Peter and an angel forbidding someone showing veneration to them. And yet Nicaea too is going to say um, that you can actually show veneration or worship or whatever, not just to an apostle or an angel in person, but also even to a painting of them. And it's not really an argument that I think uh, holds any water. Like it's not an article. It's not an um, argument, sorry, that really works for me. I think the, the scriptural exegesis of Nicaea too is, um, to be honest, almost preposterous. It's, it, it yeah. just, it, it can't work. And sola scriptura means that I, I can read the Bible. I know a bit of Greek. I can see how it's all working. And I can say, you know what, Nicaea too, you, you messed up. That's not what's going on at all. I have the freedom yeah. to say that. Yeah. And, 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 it's in our very articles, the 39 articles for an Episcopalian or Anglican who sees those as authoritative to, to see the articles say, and I can't even think of the article, I'm being a bad Anglican right now, that councils have aired. Yes, right? that's right. That's, that's absolutely there. It says general councils can air. Yeah. Right. And, and I do feel like, you know, um, 
So again, like going into, um, okay, so the if councils can err, right, um, there comes the kind of crisis of authority, which mm-hmm. I mean, to their, you know, to their credit, a lot of Roman Catholic apologists really uh, put a lot of, um, they, they really take advantage of that whole issue. It's like you need to have some type, type of final authoritative norm. And to, to a lot of their, to, in a lot of their polemics, it says that, you know, soul of scripture basically says, okay, so it's just the Bible that's authoritative. Well, who gets to, who gets to interpret what the Bible mm-hmm. And of course, like you, you, like you said before, and I'm just kind of reiterating, um, you know, for a, a church of, of that nature, who's it's in their structure to have a teaching office, which is to guide the people of what the church really means. But I guess my deeper critical question to, to them on that, and you, you probably would agree is that, you know, um, what prevents that teaching office or what got, what guides the teaching office and what prevents it from doing faulty interpretations? Well, we would say, Uh say the Holy spirit, right? Well, the Holy spirit can also, the Holy spirit operates on every mind and heart of every person. And it can also do so in instances where the teaching office gets it wrong which I think a clear, you know, run rundown of history can show where uh, certain councils have either contradicted contradicted themselves or, mm-hmm. just, like you said with Nicaea too, having faulty exegesis. So, okay, I mean, I, I'm convinced uh, councils can err, but what? But but if we if it comes down to like, because you're saying you're not for this hyper individualistic interpretation of the scripture. Like no one can just take the Bible, open it up and be like, you know, um, I'm going to have it say, and I'm going to pose on the Bible, what I wanted to say. Cause that's often the charge that I'm not just going to single out Roman Catholics. I'm going to say within our own tradition, Anglo Catholics who believe in like going more towards that type of, you know, church tradition, having, uh, you know, setting the parameter for what, for how we interpret the Bible, whatever, like, how is it though, that truly, as you argue, an individual in their conscience can, can disagree with the, you know, if the possibility of disagreeing with the entirety of the church, if they Mm -hmm. feel the entirety of the church has gotten something wrong. Yeah. And this is where, you know, we get into territory that causes quite a lot of fear and anxiety for people because um, if we're going to say that Nicaea 2 is stuffed up and is wrong, then, gosh, could I say the same thing about Nicaea 1? Could I say that Nicaea 1 has the potential to be wrong, that the Nicene Creed has the potential to be wrong? And this is where this is what's going to upset people is I'm actually going to say, yeah, it has the potential to be wrong. I don't think Nicene Creed is wrong. I say it every day when I do the daily office. But could it have been wrong? Yeah, but praise God it wasn't, right? <laughs> and um, 
as a, as a, as an individual Christian, I do have the freedom to, to question and I have the freedom to read scripture and say, you know, it's nice and create true. And, and hopefully by God's guidance, I'm going to see that it is true. I do believe it is true. Um, but I do have the freedom to be able to double check, uh, to, right. Um, now the, does this, does this mean that we can't have creeds and stuff? No. So that, that, that's a sort of very arrogant position to be in. Like the, the early church have, um, been debating certain issues for hundreds of years. They've been pouring their lives and their hearts and souls into studying the scriptures um, all of the arguments against, I don't know, the divinity of Christ that you could possibly come up with, they've already faced, they've already dealt with them. Uh, also, we've got traditions that go back to the apostles. So, so we've got fathers who claim that Christ was God, who, who personally knew the 12 apostles. So, you know, what they say does hold quite a lot of weight. And so it would be, it would be arrogant for an individual to say, you know what, I'm not going to even read the early church. I'm not even going to read the Nicene Creed. I don't care. I'm just going to read my Bible and decide what it says because that is an arrogant thing to, to say. And, um, you know, a sort of North American, I guess, person who would think that, I mean, you don't even, you don't even speak Greek, you know, so <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's just not a position you can hold to. So we do believe that there are other authorities um, like the church that um, that have a say about what scripture means. And in fact, what they say scripture means probably is more reliable than what you think it means, right? <laughs> or anyone thinks. However, um, who is, this is the key word here, who's the final authority for the individual? Who has the final say for what they're going to believe? And in Protestantism, we're going to say it's you, the individual. You're, you're the sort of final decider or judge for what's true. And, what, and, and so what this means is, um, okay, you've got the Mormon church saying Jesus is not one of the Father. You've got Nicaea 1 saying Jesus is one being of the Father. Uh, these are two authorities. I'm gonna, I don't think the Mormon church has any authority, of course, but, you know, like in, just in a sense, we've got two, two sort of bodies saying something. What are you going to believe? Who, who decides who's true? Mm-hmm. It's you who decides ultimately. And, and if you don't say that, then I think you get yourself into some trouble. If you're going to say that the individual doesn't have the freedom to follow his own judgment or conscience, then we're actually going to go back to medieval Roman Catholic church. And it's, we're going back to um, Luther not being able to question the church. Right. Um, so, yeah. But I mean, some of the common, and I don't agree with these to be clear, but some of the common criticism, like from the kind of the, the rad trad Catholic, you know, types, mm. it would say, you know, you know, you're setting any individual up to be their own Pope. Or um, I just can't help but see like they where they would see like an enlightenment, you know, cartoon type of epistemology that gets to be the authority over um, truth. 
how would you answer those things? And again, I think there are good arguments against those things. Um, but I know you thought more about this and you've written about this. And so I don't know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. First of all, I would say that the reason why a lot of Protestants, especially Anglicans, um, have a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to the stuff and why they are going to say, oh, no, no, that we don't have private judgment, we have to obey the councils and stuff, is usually a knee-jerk reaction either to Roman Catholic apologetics who have done a great job of making these points and, and so um, a lot of Protestants sort of get scared away and say, oh, okay, no, no surely I'm not. I'm not a, I don't have private judgment or it's a sort of need to reaction to the enlightenment itself and its consequences. But I think we just need to be honest and say the enlightenment did happen um, because of the reformation that, that Luther did open the door to this. Um, we're not going to, we're not, I'm not saying that this means that I'm going to be, we, we should all be Kantians or something and we should all, you know, it's, but we, we do have to be intellectually honest and say, yes, the enlightenment, did happen as a consequence. Um, but the differences in the Enlightenment, they, they're going to make themselves an authority over Scripture. So they're actually they're going to make the same mistake that Luther would accuse of Rome. Right. When I say the individual is, is the final authority, no, no, Scripture is the authority. It's just that, and you have to obey Scripture, but, but what does Scripture mean? That's all we're talking about. So, for instance, Luther isn't saying that individuals are free to believe whatever they want. He's saying an individual is free to believe what God wants, and they are also free to decide to, to use their judgment about what that is in God's infallible scriptures. So this isn't a liberal position because we're going we're gonna to hold scripture to the highest possible standard of infallibility and authority. Um, but then to, to answer a Roman Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox, who's going to say, you know, the, the famous one, every person is his own Pope. We've all heard that. What I would respond to is actually just to say that most Roman Catholics I know are also their final judge. Um, so for instance, the most, uh, rad trad, the most traditionalist Roman Catholics I know, all of them are converts to Rome. They became a Roman Catholic. And, and how do you think they did that? <laughs> they used their private judgment. The conscience, I think. But also yeah. I've seen it because um, I engage with these people on, on like private groups on Facebook and stuff like that. But like they, they're, um, you know, they'll, they'll be free to dissent against anything in their own institutional church out of, it seems out of reasons of conscience. And I, mm-hmm. feel, wow, I wonder who first really, you know, use that card a lot it was the reformers yeah 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 so yeah um, and even if you so <laughs> if you say um i i can't be my i can't uh use my judgment because the church is infallible and i have to obey the church because it's infallible well here's two questions to ask first of all the church is infallible well who's that who's the church then is it is it the mormons and they're going to say well no it's my church or <laughs> says who, right? <laughs> Everyone has to eventually use their private judgment to even decide who the infallible church is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can't escape your private judgment. It's, it's, it is really inescapable. And I think as Protestants, we're just more honest about that and we're just going to take it to its conclusion. Right. Yeah, no, I think you're right about that. And, and I like how you said 
you know, you're upfront, I think, and honest in a, in a, in a, you know, that there is a connection between the Reformation and the Enlightenment. Um, and to be clear, I, you know, for us, I don't think the Enlightenment is an entirely bad thing. Um, and you have to see it in its historical context as a disillusionment in the least in part with like the 30 years war and interreligious disagreement taken to, you know, ends that just not, just not good that we, we in our modern understanding know that we can't do. Um, but I don't think it necessarily, the enlightenment does not necessarily logically follow the, Re the reformation and, there, um, which I think you you definitely indicated, and that uh, they need to be both read in their respective historical contexts, and also see that some of the very principles that drove one are contradictory very much to the principles that drove the other, uh, even if we see where there's um, continuity. Um, mm, yeah, so, um, yeah, I think you you you. Very well, you put. And, and uh, before we, um, I know we're, we're getting our, our our time is drawing to a close. I meant to ask you earlier: Have you, because um, we're talking about the relation of, you know, uh, you know, the scripture with tradition, and that's all a part. Mm -hmm. of you. And I'm putting links to all your all three of those articles from North American Anglican in the in the show notes. Have you read any of? Heiko Oberman's work on the different concepts of what church tradition is. No, I haven't actually. Uh, you, you would uh, greatly enjoy those. Um, I'll put it in the show notes for our listeners too, but. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Heiko Oberman, Oberman wrote a book called the dawn of the reformation, mm -hmm. which he basically, uh, he says, you know, everyone talks about tradition, you know, next to scripture, next to scripture and reason, whatever, but no one like cares to break down what does tradition mean. Mm. And he basically says, okay, there's a, there's kind of different schools of thought that you see emerge very early on in the church. One is something he calls tradition one, which is kind of like what the reformers went with the, mm. uh, you know, the, the church carrying on the exegetical tradition of scripture. And that's tradition. That's the church's tradition, right. To continue. Yeah proclaim scripture to a new age very much what like we would say lutheran calvin would be on and then tradition two which is kind of like a tradition separate um a totally different pillar you know an equal pillar of the church with script which you see kind of solidified with council of trenton i'll put the show note in there i think i mean i'm curious um what your engagement with that would bring about i think it's um i mean he's like a dutch reformed Mm. Oh, I like them. Luther scholar. So, I mean, I, I'm just curious. Yeah. I'd be interested in seeing your engagement with that work. So, yeah, great. Thank you for that. Hey, there's just there's just a few things I want to clarify there as well, because this is sort of a topic where you do need to be clarify lots of things. Mm -hmm. One is we can't forget how important scripture's perspicuity is in all this. Because we're saying scripture's perspicuous, uh, we're saying that this isn't a case of scripture being really mysterious and murky and vague and everyone's going to sort of take their own thing from it. We're saying, no, no, scripture is like fairly clear what it's saying. Yeah. So 
Yeah. Uh, if if everyone uses their private judgment to read scripture and, every, and 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 all those people are guided by the Holy Spirit, you know, we are going to say that people who aren't regenerated are going to struggle to understand what God's saying. But if if a bunch of regenerated Christians read scripture and use their private judgment, we're going to say that they should be coming to very similar conclusions. So we're not opening the door to chaos. Right. Um, but the other thing to say is, um, I think part of this is, is this concept of what the ground of your faith is or what the first principle of your faith is. So in Protestantism, we're going to say that scripture is the ground or the first principle of your faith. So like, obviously, as a Christian, what we believe in is, is God, God, the Trinity. But how do we know who God is, what he's done? through scripture alone. So scripture is that first principle. Right. And then, then we're going to say everything else in life uh, that I believe has to agree with the first principle because that's like, that's the ground. So you mentioned Descartes and enlightenment thought, but this is sort of helpful. Descartes said, I think therefore I am. The first principle of Cartesian thought is I know that I think. Why? Well, because I just do, right? And so I'm not. I can't believe any conclusion that could actually negate that. If I end up believing something that means that I can't possibly be thinking right now, well, that means it's not true. Mm -hmm. Same with scripture. I can't believe in anything that could negate scripture, and and that means that scripture becomes enormous everything else. And so if Nicaea two says something and says, oh no, you can, you can venerate images of apostles. And I read scripture and the apostles themselves refuse people to venerate them. Then I'm going to say, well, then that's not true because scripture is the ground. However, if you're going to say that actually whatever the church, the, in an ecumenical council or something says is infallible. And that means that you can kind of essentially warp what scripture's plain sense is that actually means that the church is the ground of your faith. Mm -hmm. if, if scripture's plain sense is screaming something at you, like this is the truth. And then a church council says, no, no, actually that the plain sense reading isn't true. This is actually what the case is. You've, you've actually made the church that first principle and the church norms everything else. Right. And so the Protestants are going to say that's a massive issue. The first principle surely should be God's word, you know, the, the, the God-breathed words of scripture, not the church. And so we're going to say that the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church has got their, their whole sort of structure of how their faith works just the wrong way around. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I appreciate what you say about the perspicuity Um you know, going back to, I mean, I love what Luther says about the external and internal clarity of scripture, even in the external sense for unregenerate, you know, person of no faith, the scripture is not by and large. I mean, with, throughout its various writings, uh, it is very clear, you know, with some understanding of how to read what is indicated in it and what it what it's meant to convey and so i always i think it's false teachers and false prophets of any stripe that'll try to say well you need someone to help decipher this for you whether yep. that be the academy whether that be a church teaching office of supposedly more sophisticated christians than than ourselves so maybe mm. 
Yeah. Well, River, thank you. This has been an awesome episode. What a great discussion. Um, I'd love to have you back on. Um, I'm continuing to look, or I'm, I'm going to continue to look forward to your continuing work with um, North American Anglican. I'm, I'm sure uh, we'll be looking forward to some more, uh, some more things you put out through them. And yeah, I think this debate over soul searcher on them is probably come to a close. Um, I don't think they want to, <laughs> they want to be having their website sort of bogged down by this. Yeah. Uh, well, especially this after for, this for episode, they're not going to want to mess with you anymore. So you know. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> thanks so much for having me on. It's just been a real honor Thank and you. Um, great to talk to you. Yeah. God bless River and uh, God bless your continued work in your ministry. Thanks.